Well, good morning, church. Real good to see you this morning. You guys doing okay with the daylight savings time? I like it much better in the fall when we get the, that extra hour. This morning, I was thinking, early morning, or maybe it was last night, I was thinking, you know, our first service this morning really is going to be at 7.15. Is anybody else going to be here except me? But uh, fortunately, diehards, they showed up, so we're good. Uh, a couple of things. Okay, y'all know our mission. If you've been part of Woods Edge, we want to love Jesus with all our hearts. We want to journey together, groups of all kinds, especially home church. And we want to bring hope to the world, and that's across the street, and that's around the world. That's what we're all about, those three things. Women's uh, retreat's coming up in a few weeks, and I know the, the three speakers are tremendous, Gina Webster, Lawrence Stone, Lauren Stone, and Mindy Height. So they're going to be speaking. It's going to be great. Encourage you women to consider it. Okay. Faith is elusive. It is hard to get your hands around it. It's hard to get your hands around what all it involves, what all it means. And it is certainly hard to get your hands around, you know, what it means to live by faith on a daily basis. If you were here last week, we, we began a, a study with the life of Abraham, and he is the main example in all Scripture of the life of faith. And so we're going to be particularly pressing in to what it means for you and me to trust God and to live by faith. Living by faith, it may be elusive, but it is absolutely vital to the spiritual life because, I mean, it's right at the heart of our faith. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is, and He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. It's impossible to please God without faith. Or, just as strongly from the negative side, Romans 14.23 says, that whatever is not from faith is sin. I mean, that's so clear. If we're not trusting God, it's sin against God. Also, think about the Gospels, the life of Jesus. The main thing that he rebuked his disciples for in the Gospels was their failure to trust him, their unbelief, their lack of faith. Oh, ye of little faith. And so we know that faith is absolutely vital and absolutely central to the spiritual life. And we've got to know that it's not just in the Bible, but right now, God is looking for men and women who will live by faith. He is looking for men and women who, are, who will dare to trust Him as they go through life. Are you amongst them? Are you part of that group? What is faith? It's trusting God. It's believing what God says. It's taking God at His word. It is dependence upon God and not yourself. It is, it is reliance upon God and not yourself. So really, it is abandoning self-reliance. And, a, and relying upon God. I think the best English word is trust. The word faith to most of us has connotations of, you know, something inside your brain, like something inward. And that's not the nuance of, of trust or faith. Trust or faith is trust in the object of our faith. It's, it's outward out of your brain, trusting God who is there. Trust is a good word. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and you make your path straight. Trust Him with all your heart. That means you lean not. You do not rely on self. But in all your ways you acknowledge God. What do you acknowledge? You acknowledge that He's God, that He's good, that He cares, that He has the power to do something about your situation. 
that uh, he hears your prayers. You acknowledge, in all your ways, you acknowledge him, and he will make your path right. That's faith. That's trust. That is walking in faith. Now, every single one of us are enrolled in the school of faith. It's part of our life with God. We're in the school of faith. We're learning faith. It's not, a, not an elective course for us. It's a required course. And, and this is what God is using to teach us. He is using our times of waiting upon God and calling out to God and praying to God. He uses our times of struggling and suffering. It is those times that he is using to build faith and to grow faith in you and me. And that is all too familiar to us, isn't it? Probably right now he's building faith in you, isn't he? Well, yes, he is. He absolutely is. All righty. We're going to look at our passage today and unpack this. If you'll stand with me for our passage, it's Genesis 15. Last week, Genesis 12, uh, episode in the life of Abraham. This week, 15. Next week, 18. Beginning in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham. I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Church, this is God's holy word. Please be seated. And verse 1, very first thing God says to Abraham, Abraham, don't be afraid. Now, you've heard me talk about this, and others talk about it. 365 times in the Bible, God says to somebody, do not be afraid. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. The very first time this ever occurs is right here in our passage. He comes to Abraham, and he said, Abraham, do not be afraid. Now, you can bet every time that God says to somebody in Scripture, do not be afraid, you can bet that that man is scared to death. <laughs> so Abraham is afraid. Why is he afraid? Well, it's because what happened in the previous chapter, Genesis 14, this is what happened. In the spring, when the, in the ancient Near East, that's when the kings went to war. In the spring of the year, there were a coalition, there was a coalition of kings who swept down into the Jordan Valley attacking cities like Sodom. And that's where Abraham's nephew Lot and his family were living. These kings, this coalition of kings, swept down and captured these cities and took off a bunch of captives, including Abraham's own nephew Lot. Now, Abraham could have said, you know, that's not my concern. Lot wanted to live there. He could have done that, but he was a bigger man than that. He was a man of faith. And in courage, he did something quite remarkable. He decides, I'm going to go after Lot. 
even though it's a coalition of kings that took a bunch of cities up there and captured them, I'm going after Lot to rescue him, if at all possible. Now, at this time, Abraham is a pretty wealthy man. It's been years since the call. He's got 300 household servants. So he puts them together, and he goes up there, and maybe they were, you know, celebrating and drinking, and they weren't themselves, but Abraham is able to capture all of those, uh, those he's able to recover all of those captures, including Lot, brings them back. Now, that was a great celebration. At the end of the chapter, there's some great things happen about a priest by the name of Melchizedek, and it's a great deal. But you can imagine that Abraham began to think, okay, Next spring, those same kings are again going to sweep down into our area, and they're going to be looking for one man, Abraham. They're going to be looking for me. And he, the fear filled his heart. Now, you and I can understand that, can't we? We know fear. We know how fear can grab us around the throat and choke the life out of us. At times it can, you know, kind of be a back-burning churning, and that's no fun, but sometimes it just attacks us, and it sucks the joy and, and, and peace out of our lives. Some say that fear is the most governing human emotion, that, uh, you know, it's something we all wrestle with. I mean, you brought some fears in here this morning, tried to keep them at bay, but uh, we wrestle with fear. We wrestle with fear about health about the health of our loved ones, about cancer, about Alzheimer's, about all kind of things. If you're out of work, you certainly wrestle with fears about job and how I'm going to provide for my family. And, and maybe you're, you're, you've got fears about your marriage or about your kids or about a prodigal child. We wrestle with fear. And God, over and over, comes to us and says, do not be afraid. That's specifically what he says to Abraham. He says, Abraham, do not be afraid, for I am your shield. I'm your shield, Abraham. I will protect you. I'm protecting you. You don't have to worry about these kings coming down next, next spring and attacking you because I will be your shield. I will take care of you. Now, that is the promise of God to Abraham, and that is the promise of God throughout Scripture to his people. So what God is saying to you this morning is the fears you brought in here the greatest fear you brought in here is, is look, Bob, uh, Nick, Sarah, do not be afraid because I've got this. I got it. I am your shield. I am your protector. I will take care of you. Over and over, God says that to his people. Now, this does not mean that you're not going to suffer. It does not mean that we will not struggle. You might even die. I mean, you are going to die, aren't you? I mean, if Jesus does not come back before you die, you're going to die. It's heaven where we're going to live forever, not, not earth. You're going to die if Jesus doesn't come back first. So it doesn't mean you're not going to die. It doesn't mean you're not going to suffer, not going to struggle. You know what it means that he's going to protect you? It means that no final or ultimate harm will touch you that does not first come through the loving hands of God. That he's got you in his, in his arms. He's got you in his gaze. And he has numbered the hairs on your head. And he will protect you from anything that has final harm to you. If it's not part of what he's got for you, it ain't happening. 
God says, I am your shield and your protector. Now, think about that in light of the fear that you brought in here this morning. God says, I've got this. I've got this. Now, let's press into this. What's your biggest fear? And tell you what mine is? My biggest fear. Those of you who have been around Wood's Edge, you know that I've struggled with mental disease. And by far, the greatest pain I've had in my life involves mental disease, OCD. And about seven years ago, 2011, eight years ago, in May, I had some real breakthrough. And God, it got so bad that God brought some healing. Many of you were here, you were praying for me that I'd survive that and live through that. And God began to bring some incredible healing. And much of the time, the last few years, it's like I don't even have this. It's like it's gone. My greatest fear. Oh, yep. Yeah, God. I love it. But my greatest fear, just to be candid with you, is that that OCD would come back. And, and, and it's so painful, I don't know if I could handle it. And, and that is the most terrifying thought for me. And so I've got to trust God with that fear, don't I? I've got to, uh, to be bringing that to God. Lord, uh, you can protect me. You can protect me. What is it for you? What is your biggest fear? And God is saying, you've got to give that to me. Because I'm your shield. I'm your protector. Nothing is going to touch you that doesn't go through my loving hands. God says to Abraham, I'll take care of you, Abraham. I will protect you. That's the first of three promises that we see in the Bible. Now, the verse that I have cited to myself more than any other verse in the Bible, I'm pretty sure, is John 14, 1. It speaks to fear. It says this, Let not your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. So Jesus is about to die. He's telling his disciples they're riddled with fear. Let not choose to not let your heart be troubled. It's a choice. You, you don't have to give way to it. Let not your heart be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. The antidote, the answer for fear is faith, is trust. Trust me, trust God, he'll take care of you. And I've had to bring that out to so many, many times. Now, the life of faith is not an abstract and generalities. It's not just, okay, I'm going to trust the Lord. Claim specific promises that apply to that situation. Okay, you got a big fear? Then pull out one of the passages speaking to fear, like John 14, 1, and claim it and own it and hold to it. That's the life of faith. That means you need to learn the Bible and soak yourselves in the Scriptures and, and live in them and learn some of these key promises because this is the life of faith. We claim specific promises. All right, that's the first promise. I'll take care of you. I'll protect you. I'm your shield. Second thing is your reward shall be very great. Your reward shall be very great. You know, that's part of faith too, isn't it? Remember that verse I started with, Hebrews eleven six. 6, without faith it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and he is a rewarder of those who seek him. I'm good to you. You seeking me, I'll take care of you. I will bless you. I will give you good things. Now, you're seeking the Lord. You wouldn't be here if you weren't. We may not have perfect faith. We have enough faith to seek the Lord. And he's going to bless you. He's going to put good things upon you. And that's what God says to Abraham in the second promise. I'll do you good, Abraham. I will put my hand of favor upon you, including I will provide for you that child. Your reward shall be very great. This past uh, couple of weeks, I read the 
smallish book by John Piper. I think it's probably his latest book. It's uh, called Why I Love the Apostle Paul. I like that title. I love the Apostle Paul. I read the book. It was okay. It wasn't great. And, um, but I got to the last chapter, and I really liked it because he began talking about how his favorite verse in the Bible is Romans 8.32. Now, I love Romans 8.32. This is what it says. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Did y'all stay with that verse? This is what he's saying. He said, if God gave his own son Jesus on a cross, a bloody cross to die for you, will he not give you everything else you need? The answer is yes. Now, I've loved that verse for 40 years. In fact, it's on the inside of our wedding rings. When we got married and I was in mid-20s, uh, you know, uh, sort of as an emblem, the, the centrality of the love of God on the cross and how he'll bless us, we put Romans 8.32 on, on our, on our, inside of our rings. So I was glad to see that John Piper thought that's the best, most inspiring verse in the Bible. Now, what does this verse say if it is not, I will be good to you? Look at Jesus on the cross, and that tells you, if I did that, I'll give you everything else you need. I'll be good to you. Isn't that what Psalm 23.1 says? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, that is, I will not lack anything that I truly need, because if I truly need it, he'll give it to me when I need it. Isn't that what Psalm 84, 11 says? No good thing does God withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing. If it's a good thing for you at that time, then God will give it to you. Now, how does that fit those of you who are desperately praying for a marriage or a child or a healing in your present marriage or a job or healing and all kind of things? Well, you bring out that promise of God in Psalm 84, 11, that says to you, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Not those who are perfect, those who seek him. And you believe it. And you say, okay, okay. This is what many, many Christians say. They're going through these things. That, I don't, what's God doing? Why is God doing this to me? The opposite of that is saying, if it's a good thing for me, God will give it. God will give it. It's hard for me to think about Psalm 8411 without thinking of John Lodwick. John Lodwick was a, a fellow student I met my first week at Rice University. He's a fellow runner. Uh, his roommate left. I moved in with John, and we were roommates for the next eight years. Four years at Rice, three years at Dallas Seminary, and then we both our fourth year took a year off school and moved to Eugene, Oregon, where we would train with Nike to try to qualify for the 1980 Olympic trials. We we're both marathoners. Now, during that year, uh, I, I, I was struggling. I had a couple of stress fractures, wasn't in great shape, but John was in great shape. At the end of nine months, arduous, really 12 months of arduous training, hundreds and hundreds of miles, John was in great shape and had a good chance to make the Olympic team. And a week to go, you're really resting and kind of taking it easy the last few weeks before a big marathon. A week to go, he had a tune-up race that didn't really matter, but something happened to his foot during that race, and he looks down, and he has a blood-soaked shoe. And he's injured, and he's got a week to go. So you can imagine how devastated he was, how disappointing he was. And the next uh, week, he, he goes to the Olympic trials in Buffalo, New York. He tries to run the race. He starts the race, but you know, the foot is not, not, is not well, and he can't finish the race. You can imagine, after taking off a year of school, all the training, all the fitness, how disappointing that would have been. 
Now, I talked with John after the race, and I, 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 it's just etched in my mind. And I expressed to him, John, I'm so sorry about your foot. And this was his response. It's kind of a reflexive response. I mean, we were roommates eight years. He wasn't trying to be spiritual with me. He's just being honest. He said, uh, well, Jeff, if it had been a good thing for me, then God would have given it to me. Because the Bible says, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So if it had been good for me at this time, he would have given it to me. But church, that's faith. That, that's what it means when the Bible says God is looking for men and women who will live by faith. As we respond to the hardships of life, not with, man, what's God doing? I don't mean it's wrong to ask questions. I mean it's wrong to think God is, being, is not being good to you. You've got a rock-solid faith that if it's a good thing, God would give it to you. And do you see how John uh, claimed a specific promise from the Bible? This is the life of faith. You grab a specific promise and you stand on it. Even though you do not understand, you stand on it. It's the life of faith. God says, Abraham... Your reward's going to be very great. And that's going to include a child. You see, Abraham had two big problems at this point. One problem was his fear of the kings attacking him next spring. You know, scared to death about that. But the second problem is he still didn't have a child, and God had promised him to give him as many descendants as the stars in the skies. And he didn't have one child yet. His wife is getting older, probably, you know, pushing 70 by now. And she's barren. So how does Abraham respond to him? Abraham uh, is honest with God. God loves it when we're honest. Abraham responds in verse 4, verse 2. He said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Now, if you were with me there, twice he says the same thing. It's like he's rubbing it in. Look, I don't have an heir. It's Eleazar. I don't have an heir. It's Eleazar. You've given me no heir. God said to him in verse 4, says, Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And then he did something. He took Abraham, and he took him outside the tent. Apparently, they were in the tent. And that Middle Eastern sky at night, and he said, Look up and count the stars in the sky if you are able to number them so shall your offspring be, Abram. From you, from you, not from Eleazar, from you. You're going to have kids more than the stars in the sky. Can you imagine how many stars are in that sky? You know, I grew up in Madisonville, Texas, our north where Bucky's is now. Now, the Gulf Coast of Texas, you know, <laughs> way, way out there, you know, we got some good stars because there's not as much ambient light as Houston, but, you know, it's still the Gulf Coast. And the first time I really saw a sky full of stars, I was at altitude or at elevation. This is what happened. In my sophomore year at college, I visit a friend in San Diego, Rory Trupp. Uh, we uh, drive from San Diego up past the L.A. area up to Big Bear Lake. Some of you from California, you know Big Bear Lake area is about 8,000 feet, I think. And now Rory and I were driving late one night. No other, nobody else was around us on this mountain road. We were in his old blue truck. And he pulls off the road, turns his light, lights off, gets out. We're probably about 6,000 feet. And, and, he says, and he says to me, Jeff, look up at the stars. And I had never seen so many stars. 
Do you remember when you first saw a sky full of stars like you'd never seen? I mean, whoa. It must have been a night like that for Abraham. And God says, see all those stars? That's how many kids you're going to have. Did, did that happen? Has that happened? You bet it's happened. Untold millions of people have come through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the others. So God says, Abraham, you're not done. I will do good to you. And that's going to include giving you a child. Now we come to the very key verse in the whole passage, verse 6. This is Abraham's response to what God said about all those stars. We read in verse 6, and he believed the Lord. He trusted the Lord. He believed God's word was true, that God was going to do that. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, two key words in this passage that we've got to understand, this verse. He believed the Lord. That, that, that's what we've been talking about, trusted. He, he, he believed what God said was true. He did not have perfect faith. The very next chapter, he's going to be having, you know, trying to have a child through a maidservant. But he had enough faith to believe the Lord. You, you may not have perfect faith. I don't. But we got enough faith to show up to seek the Lord and enough faith to call out to God. Okay, he believed the Lord. And this is what God did. God said, Abraham, I'm counting this as your righteousness. Now, this is what that theological term means. It means you have right standing with me. You're right with me. When you think of the theological word righteousness, shorten it to right, right with God. That's what it means. Same as justified. In fact, the Greek language, they're the, same, the exact same roots. Um, it means God made him right with him. Romans 5.1, therefore having been justified by faith, faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're right with God. And that happens whenever we trust the Lord. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, every human being who's ever saved gets saved the same way, by faith. By faith, by believing the Lord. Now, the very first verse in all the Bible that teaches salvation by faith is 15.6, right here. So it's a very foundational verse. It is quoted three times in the New Testament. The New Testament writers knew how foundational it was. In fact, one Old Testament writer, scholar, was saying this. He said, it is nothing short of amazing to find in the patriarchal age so clear-cut an answer to the question, how can a man be justified in the sight of God? The way of salvation was one and the same in the Old Covenant and in the New. It's salvation by faith, by trusting God, by believing God. Now, all through the Bible, uh, we see that time after time after time. John 3, 16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, faith, trust, believes in him, should not perish but have eternal life. Now, so we're saved by faith, and this is where it starts in this passage. Genesis 15, when Abraham responded by believing in God. God said, I count that to you as righteous. You're right with me, Abraham. He didn't know all the details about the coming Messiah that was critical to his salvation, but he trusted God by what he had. And God said, you're right with me. Now, here's the deal. Salvation by faith, by trusting God, by believing in God, that is the biblical teaching. But human beings don't like it. We don't like it. This is why. Because it just seems too easy, for one thing. I mean, really? Don't I have to do some things? Don't I have to, you know, jump some hoops? It just seems too easy. And it does nothing for my human pride, does it? Because basically, faith or believing is not me doing anything. It's me receiving a free gift. 
and I don't contribute a thing. I just receive the gift. And so I can't be praising God on with one hand and be, be praising myself on the other hand, patting myself on the back. I get zero credit when it comes to salvation by faith, that God saves me completely. And we don't like that. The Pharisees didn't like it. Much of the church around the world doesn't like it. You know, the biggest difference between the Bible and every other religion around the world is right here. Every other religion is salvation by works. You've got to earn this. You've got to be good enough. The good deeds got to outweigh the bad deeds. Every other religion boils down to that one way or the other. Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, all of it. Except the gospel. You don't earn a thing. You couldn't. And so you cry out in the words of the tax collector in Luke 18, Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. No credit to you. Now, not only is that the biggest difference between the Bible and other, any other religion, I'd say around the world, 75% of people who go to churches don't like that. And they don't accept it. And they want to do something. Just like the little two-year-old, I'd do it myself. Except you're not two. There's no pride in the grace of God. All glory. Isn't that what we sang before? All praise goes to you, Lord. All praise to you. It's the gospel. And it's grace. And it's taught way back in Genesis 15. Faith means I'm trusting God to hold me up and save me, not myself. You know, if there was a chair right here, and I sat in that chair, you know what I'd be doing? I'd be implicitly trusting that that chair is going to hold me up. And I would be transferring my trust from my legs to hold me up to that chair to hold me up. Now, I don't think about it because I know the chair is going to do it. But implicitly, I'm trusting the chair to hold me up, just like you did when you sat down. Now, that transfer of trust, self to, tr to chair, that's biblical faith. What you do when you become saved, you transfer your trust from yourself to be good enough and earn salvation. You transfer your trust to a Savior who died on a cross to save you of your sin. And that, that's how you get saved. You trust the Lord. You trust the Lord. No longer self-abandoning Reliant, you're no longer, no longer relying on yourself, you're relying on Jesus, the Savior, the cross, it's the gospel. Um, some of you aren't completely pleased with me that I don't do an altar call. I know that. Some of you got some good Baptist backgrounds, and uh, I understand that, and you're used to that. And, and God can use altar calls, but this is why I, I, I don't love them. It's because I don't want anybody to be confused that you do nothing to earn your salvation except trust the Savior. You don't walk an aisle. You don't raise your hand. You don't jump through hoops. Let's just not confuse the issue at all. All you do is trust the Savior. If you want to, you can pray a prayer about that. But you don't have to. It's trust. It's believing. Abraham believed the Lord. And he called it righteousness. And whenever something happens in your heart that you begin to trust Jesus to save you and not yourself... God saved you at that moment. And I just don't want to confuse the issue. Uh, now, others see it differently. God bless them. You can't find it anywhere in here, by the way, altar call. <laughs> just saying, just saying. Uh, but we trust the Lord. Now, church and guests, if it has never been clear to you how you get into heaven, it's clear to you now, isn't it? Isn't it? You trust the Lord.
It's just, it's a little elusive, but you're, you're depending on Jesus to save you and not yourself. If you've never done that, if you've been relying on yourself to be good enough, good days outweigh bad days, get off of that religion trap. Get on the grace plan, the grace of God plan, the free gift plan, the cross of Christ plan. Get on that one. Do it right now. You don't have to wait till the end and walk an aisle. Trust the Lord. He'll save you. He'll save you. Okay, church. Two big takeaways from our passage. One, the gospel. Salvation is by faith, by believing in Jesus. Most of us have done that. But all of us are wrestling with fear. All of us. And uh, what fear this morning do you need to bring to God? Abraham had a big fear about the kings. He also had a big fear about no kids. And God says to him, do not be afraid, Abraham. What's God saying to you this morning about your fear? I've already confessed to you my fear, my biggest fear. What's yours? Right now, bow your heads and bring it to God. Give it to God right now. Lord, hear the prayers of your people here this morning. Lord, we struggle, and we want to please you. We want to live by faith. We want to be people of faith, Lord God, but we need your help. Lord, would you please help us? We bring to you these fears. We bring them to you. Would you take them? Help us to know, Lord God, nothing's going to touch us if it doesn't first come through your loving hands. Be with your people, I pray.